This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. You are listening to Over and Back's Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s. Today's mystery is what were the biggest trades of the decade? Before we get to the show, I want to tell you guys about Fast Break Breakfast. It's a fellow Harder Proxism Network podcast. If you watch League Pass every night but aren't listening to Fast Break Breakfast, you are missing out. It's what happens when you get two musicians and a comic who are overeducated, underemployed, but share an obsession about the NBA, 90s movies, and conspiracy theories. So make sure you subscribe to Fast Break Breakfast, a podcast for serious NBA fans that is incredibly not serious. And now let's begin. Hi, I'm Jason, and uh, with me today is the man behind the uh, NBA Trades Twitter account, uh, blog, and podcast. Uh, Raphael, welcome back to the show, sir. Thanks for having me today. I'm, I'm uh, really a um, good old-fashioned trades. Uh, that's my type of topic. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, the, the, the thing that I noticed is other than Wilt Chamberlain, who's, of course, a special case uh, you know, in and of himself, pretty much all the NBA legends up to 1970 had not been traded. Almost all of them were you know, stuck with one team. You know, George Mikan, Dolph Shays, Bill Russell, Paul Arizon, Bob Cousy, Bob Pettit, Jerry West, and Elgin Baylor. I mean, most of those guys, you know, were pretty much associated with one team. But, you know, suddenly 1970 comes along. There's already been a, a little bit of expansion. The league's at about 14 teams at this point from, from eight just a few years before. And then a whole new league has been created, the ABA, and just massively increased the size of the player pool. Guys like Rick Barry have already jumped leagues. So it, it's a different ball game. And I feel like that was kind of a point in time in which suddenly those guys um, are starting to you know, move on to, uh, to different teams. Suddenly, like Oscar Robertson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Rick Barry, Julius Irving, Earl Monroe, George Gervin, Tiny Archibald, Pete Maravich, guys like that, all through the early 70s are, you know, um, either they're already legends or they're kind of establishing their legend, but all of them are, you know, fair game for uh, for being traded. Yes, indeed. And I always wonder if it sort of has to do with the uh, growing, like, players taking more ownership. You know, that constant uh, push and pull from ownership versus the players. Unfortunately, that's such a, a big thing. Uh, well, not unfortunate, but that's such a thing that we see today that it's that natural growth and um, eventually leading to where we are today with uh, players and owners and their relationships. Yeah, and I think this contributes to sort of the, the, the messiness of the 70s in a sense. You know, there, there's the lack of the dominant team of the decade like there are in the, you know, most of the other decades in the league. There is, um, you know, like I said, so many teams moving, so many teams being added and subtracted to leagues. There's just so much. Um, it's almost hard to keep track of it unless you really, really study it hard. I mean, the other decades, you know, there there are some simple, easy storylines. You know, the 60s, you obviously have the Celtics and the battles with Chamberlain and and the Lakers. In um, the 80s, you have Burton Magic. The 90s, you have Jordan. 
But the 70s, there, there isn't necessarily that one dominant thing that, um, you know, that, that, that you focus on right away. So it it's, makes it kind of harder to dive into just initially. I agree. It's it's really tough to sort of like get feel for like why a lot of these trades were happening, but it's to me at least I find it like really interesting to like see what happened with why these superstars or or why why this all of a sudden now I can only imagine at that time you know you're used to Bill Russell staying on his team and uh, you're used to Arizin and Mike and all these other people from the 50s and the 60s. And so this must have been a shock for people to see your best players moving on. Yeah, it, totally. And it's uh, and obviously, you know, there's there's changes with the money as well. The money is increasing. You know, the finances are going to drive a lot of these trades as, as we'll uh, come to see. So uh, it just obviously so much revolutionary impact, which, which makes it um, which makes the decade fascinating to examine, but just hard to, you know, draw clear and simple conclusions in. Um so the first trade I'd like to talk about is from April 21st, 1970, the end of the 1970 season. Oscar Robertson traded by the Cincinnati Royals to the Milwaukee Bucks for Charlie Polk and Flynn Robinson. Uh, there had been kind of bad blood between Robertson and the Royals for a few seasons. The, the, the early part of the 60s, the Royals are a you know, pretty stout team, challenging the Celtics, he made some deep runs against them. Um, took them to seven games a couple times, never obviously got over the hump there, and then started to, uh, they had a hard time replacing Jack Twyman, who was you know, kind of uh, Robertson's uh, top, top teammate for a while. Uh, Jerry Lucas was there, but, uh, you know, the, the, the chemistry or, you know, whatever it was didn't quite work. They made some, some bad decisions, and uh, just overall there was kind of a Bush League atmosphere for that team. So there had been some blood blood there. And then um, when uh, Bob Cousy came in as the Royals coach, uh, that situation didn't work out very well either. And and Robertson later said that in his autobiography that you know, Cousy tried to belittle my contributions to basketball. It still bothers me. People say I should forget, but I'm not going to forget ever. All I did was make All-NBA 10 straight years, and to hear that I hadn't done enough, it still bothers me a lot. So, um, you know, Oscar's definitely a guy who um, – you know, has has had a lot of pride and had a lot of and stood up for what he thought was right. Also, was a kind of a demanding guy who asked a lot of teammates and could be and could rub people the wrong way. So, you know, it's kind of hard to know um, to kind of assign any blame for what happened there. But obviously, you know, it seemed like it was time for a change. The Bucks are this young and up and coming team with uh, Lou Alcindor, soon to be Kareem Abdul-Jabbar coming up, and 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 Oscar being sent there certainly turns them into a title contender. It definitely, I mean, like that, and that's sort of like the crazy thing when you think about it. Um, you know, Oscar Roberts has such a big time in Cincinnati, but to, when he goes to Milwaukee, like, they take off. And um, I think that, like what you said, he's known as such a difficult person. And even to this day, you see all the all, uh, Steph Curry, Curry Gate from earlier this year when uh, he criticized uh, players or whatever. And sort of that's something that's always stuck with him, this idea that he's an unhappy person or a difficult person. Um, but getting back to, like, the trade, that's such a, you know, it, he had such issues with the team, and that's sort of that situation where the Bucks totally just made out with, like, getting this, like, big-time player and not really having to give up a true, like, equal talent or equal value for what uh, they got in return from Milwaukee. 
I mean, from uh, Cincinnati. Yeah, I mean, Flid Robinson was really the only player. He, he was in in seventy. He had averaged twenty one point eight points and five point five assists. So he, you know, wasn't a bad player, but uh, didn't really do much in Cincinnati. And then you know, kind of was a journeyman for the most part. So it, it it didn't necessarily seem like quite as bad of a trade as it as it did later. Um, you know, at, at that point, uh, Robertson was thirty or thirty one, so obviously getting older. Um, and the track record for guys being effective, you know, to, to their mid thirties was not extensive in the NBA. You know, by, by that point, I mean we were still kind of getting to the point where guys were going to start, you know, uh, in this really to this generation of guys, Oscar Wilt and um, and Jerry West, you know, being kind of the key guys who would, you know, be effective into their mid and even their late thirties. But um, so yeah, so it, it sort of made sense to cut bait uh, to a certain extent uh, for, with Oscar, but uh, obviously it didn't, didn't really work out for the Royals. They um, they were able to get Tony Archibald uh, in there pretty soon, and, and he played pretty well. But they were not long for um, they were not long for Cincinnati. Ended up moving to uh, Kansas City slash Omaha a, a couple years later and uh, recasting themselves as the Kings. And uh, anything else about uh, this trade that stands out to you? Um, I, you know, not, there's nothing else besides just the fact that, you know, he had such a, obviously Cincinnati's where he put up all of his crazy numbers, uh, his, uh, crazy individual numbers, but like, um, it's amazing to sort of, to see the, the, I'm still shocked over looking at the value. I know like, like what you said about Flynn Robinson, uh, putting up really solid numbers and being a 20 and five assist guy. But still, Oscar Roberts is a triple double man, and so um, it's 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 uh, really interesting to see like just you know what impact did this have on like future trades in terms of like superstars where teams like okay we got to make sure we get as much value down the road because that's, I think that's the hardest part I think when we look through all trades that involve like superstars, especially what are you getting of value? Are you going to get players of the future? And I think that's the hardest part is that the especially in 1970s trades. A lot of them don't feature like draft pick being involved in trades. It's sort of just like random players and not really getting as much in return. Whereas nowadays we see, you know, you have to offer three first rounders to get a superstar nowadays. So, you know, it's really interesting to see. Yeah. And, and you know, there's definitely the, at that point draft picks were not valued in the same way that they are today. Um, and the and considering having an idea of like wanting to keep your draft pick three or four years down the road, that was just not in anybody's thinking at the time. It was, you know, like throw it in if you need to or, or whatever. The, the very few teams were valuing them to the degree that they, of course, are um, valued today. There's a number of reasons for that. So we interrupt this great podcast that you're listening to. My name is Kevin Rayfuse. I'm Tim Tompkins. And I'm Justin Kuzart. And we host the Drive and Dish NBA podcast. We cover every team in the league and a bunch of really fun segments like random NBA player, Drive and Dougal, and hot takes from Reddit. So when you're done listening to this podcast, give us a search on iTunes or whatever podcast streaming app you're listening on. We're also at driveanddishpodcast.com. We are the Drive and Dish NBA podcast. The next trade of interest is um, is, is Jack Marin to the Houston Rockets uh, for Elvin uh, for Elvin Hayes, who went to the Baltimore Bullets, who were soon to move to Washington D.C. Uh, this was June twenty third, nineteen seventy two, and um, the Rockets had uh, had drafted Hayes right after their um, they had become an expansion team in sixty eight season, and then they had actually moved the year previously from San Diego to Houston. It was a very hasty move, and um, 
the Rockets um, were not really that well accepted in Houston. There was a feeling that Elvin Hayes being there, who had started at the University of Houston, would have been a you uh, been a big draw for them, and that was not really the case. Hayes uh, in this trade, it, it didn't seem as bad at the time as it later seemed like Jack Marin was like a pretty good player. Um, I mean, definitely seemed imbalanced, but you know, Marin was like a, he was a guy who had been part of some of those good bullets teams. The idea of, you know, kind of throwing him in there and maybe an improvement in chemistry and that sort of thing, you know, made it seem like, okay at the time, but it definitely was one of the more uh, imbalanced trades in NBA history. Yeah, it definitely was. I mean, uh, you know, I think that's sort of like, the whole issue with his uh, personality and whether he, uh, you know, rubbed people the wrong way. And I guess, you you know, it's funny because we just talked about that with Oscar. But um, in terms of, like, a value, I mean, he put up uh, great numbers throughout his career. And obviously he would go on to, to even bigger and better things in uh, Washington or uh, Baltimore uh, playing with the, the Bullets. And... Um, and partnering up with uh, West Unsolved. Yeah, and they, I mean, they would make three finals appearances in in, in five years, um, or six years, uh, from the 75 to 79, and, um, and and win that championship in 78. So, you know, they, they were very successful pairing for each other. Um, and it wasn't necessarily like an immediate, like you would think that they would fit, because, you know, they're, they're both big guys. They both were playing center at the time. In fact, I, it's funny, there's actually, uh, there, there, there's a famous story about... Um, that I heard, or a story that I heard the other day where um, Elvin Hayes was complaining that they needed better play from their center, and then Unsell heard that, and he's like, I thought he was the center. So, uh, I, just, just this is funny given that, you know, because they're both kind of non-traditional players, because Hayes was the bigger guy, but he was more, you know, kind of perimeter-oriented. Um, Unsell was a smaller guy, but he was so bulky and such a you know, great rebounder. But, um, you know, they, they were able to, I mean, they, they did have a lot of success coming off that. I mean, um, Hayes averaged 21.2 points and 12.7 rebounds over nine seasons with the uh, Bullets. Actually would end up back with the Rockets after that and, and finish his career with the last, last few years in uh, in Houston. Um, and then, yeah, Marin, he had uh, he had been an All-Star in 72. He had kind of one more good season and then pretty much you know, fell off after that. Um, and uh, one thing that Hayes was feuding with a Tex Winter, who was the Rockets coach of the time, of course, you know, Tex Winter later famed um, Lakers assistant, who was one of the forerunners of the triangle offense. And um, there's an, a Sports Illustrated article by Peter Carey that says um, most art coaches admitted they would rather take arsenic than Elvin Hayes and <laughs> talked about having having a, fra- a fragile ego. And he ultimately stormed and sought criticism, was very sullen with his teammates and coaches. And... Um, and then at a press conference announcing the deer, Dio Jinshu was the Bullets coach. Asked if this was strictly one for one, he said no. He replied, "We get Elvin's psychiatrist too." So <laughs> that's a uh, obviously funny thing to do. But yeah, they they worked out very well. Um, they were able to kind of you know there there's a good post at Bullets Forever that talks about. Um, how they had a double post offense dominating on the boards. And they also, the two of them paired with like, you know, really three really fast guards to, um, to kind of play up tempo fast, which you wouldn't necessarily think about, you know, given Unselt and Hayes. But, you know, I guess having the guards there able to kind of wrap it down the floor and the big men to, you know, to trail when necessary, but also to be able to stay back. Um, 
you know, help them. Uh, you know, they were a 50-win team, and, and you know, they, they had a little bit up and down, uh, but at that point, you know, they were definitely, uh, you know, for the most part, they were one of the stronger teams of the uh, later 70s. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Um, and especially all of those, uh, the championship run from that, like, six-year window that you talked about, uh, definitely the trade was worth it. It was ve- it was very much worth it. <laughs> yeah, and it was a little bit of a risky thing for the um, – for the Bullets at the time, or maybe not risky, but, you know, Marin had been, you know, part of a team that went to the finals in 71. This isn't that far after that. So, you know, they, they were obviously changing um, up what it worked for them. Um, but, like I said, we obviously made the right decision there and and, and, and kind of a, a crazy trade in, uh, in retrospect. So next we go to the ABA. Um, and, and the ABA, like most of their trades, I feel like, are at least the, the, the most famous ones, are this guy sold this really great player for for money because they were about to run out of money? I feel like that's basically the uh, you know the, the the way that the ABA operated, or or they would like make weird trades for draft picks. I feel like that the actual like good player for good player um, trades in the ABA, or even like you know elite level player for the most part, you know weren't happening. It was mostly kind of cash deal, and the. Um, the king of that in the ABA was the Virginia Squires owner Earl Foreman, uh, who had notorious for selling off his players when he had money trouble. He'd already sold a Julius Serving to the Annette and a Swen Nader to the Spurs at this point. And then um, January 30th, 1974, he sold uh, George Gervin uh, to the um, to the Spurs for uh, for for two hundred twenty eight thousand um, dollars. Gervin was just kind of emerging at a start at this point. He had briefly played with Irving on the Squires before Irving was traded, um, but he was coming into his own. He kind of came out of nowhere at Eastern Michigan. He was a guy no one had really even heard of and um, had actually been thrown off his team at Eastern Michigan, but um, somebody from the net, from, some, from the uh, Squires had caught him at a um, at some sort of like uh, Michigan All-Star game and uh, – it offered him a deal and brought him in, and then uh, suddenly they, you know, they they had a prize in their hand. But you know, like I said, they they were unable to uh, keep him. Um, the the the, the really interesting thing about this um, trade is that um, it, this this actually happened before the All Star game, which was going to be in Virginia. And the and Foreman didn't want fans to boycott the game. Was already uh, obviously the reputation that they were selling their good players had already, you know, preceded them. So he did. So the agreement was made, and the trade didn't happen until until weeks later. So the, so the so which was illegal, of course, at the time. But it's just kind of like a crazy. Uh, that's like one of those ultimate like only in the ABA type stories. Yeah, that's like crazy and it also shows you just how much like financials were i mean financials are still involved but just that uh the fear of like uh, fans leaving uh affects you know like them trying to to make a trade immediately versus you know waiting after the all-star break um that's crazy though i didn't really i had never uh, heard that one before yeah it's it's a story in loose balls so it's it's a it's a really good you know it's a um you know, obviously, loose balls is an incredible uh, amount of stories, but that's one of the uh, the favorite ones. I mean, basically, like, they they made this deal like in a bar, and then they called to get the you know they called the bank to get the the money, and then they keep out like fifteen minutes later. It was he like the um, Angelo Drosis, the the owner of the uh, Spurs, had like you know, recounted the story later of like trying to like you know make this deal before you know he had a chance to take it back, and 
So the Gurman plays really well in those few weeks and was great. So Foreman, after the Ulster game, was like, I don't want to do this. And he tries to back out of the deal. And in fact, he was um, supported by the ABA commissioner at the time. And he said, you know, like he, he, he said, no, I wouldn't approve the trade. He'd already essentially frozen the Virginia roster because he didn't want any more of these types of trades. And then Drosis is, is like, you know, hey, you know, he, he threatened a lawsuit and then he has this letter that reads, uh, blank you, a stronger letter will follow. So, um, and then and basically the ABA didn't do anything about it. And then, you know, um, Gervin ends up with the Spurs and then ends up being the Spurs franchise player and, you know, helps them to later ABA and, and of course, NBA success. So, um, so that obviously worked out very well for the one team. And then Virginia folded a month before the uh, ABA um, uh, NBA merger and then was, uh, you know, was out of the, uh, you know, the cash settlement or, or being uh, merged into the league. So it did not work out so well for them. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. <laughs> uh, so the next one is uh, actually two trades, but I think they're, they're, they're related enough that they are interesting. One of my favorite parts of our Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s series is our awesome logo. It does a perfect job encapsulating exactly the tone and feel we wanted with the series. Well today, I have some exciting news for you. The illustrator of that fantastic logo, Daniel J. Rowell, has made the logo, the cream and Dr. J head, as well as a bunch of other of his art available to purchase at DanielJRowell.com. Simply go to DanielJRowell.com, that's D-A-N-I-E-L-J-R-O-W-E-L-L.com, click on merch, and you can buy sweaters, coffee mugs, shirts, and more featuring Daniel's art. Now, just in case you're still on the fence, do know that Daniel can hold a piece of toast in his mouth for a solid uh, 45 seconds or so without dropping it. Plus, if you need a little bit more convincing, his aunt has described these shirts as fabulous. Again, to buy your tea, mug, or anything else that your little heart desires, go to Daniel J. Rowell, that's D-A-N-I-E-L-J-R-O-W-E-L-L.com, and click on merch. Um, the first is October 24th, 1975. Spencer Haywood traded by the Asonics to the Knicks for Gene Short, a, a 1979 first-round draft pick. And I, I believe the amount was reported as $1.5 million. Um, so um, Haywood had been a four, four-time All-Star in Seattle, but then he had, he had feuded with um, his coach Bill Russell, which we, we talked about a little bit in our um, one of our WrestleMania episodes. And despite leading the team to its first playoff appearance in history. Um, and then a year later, December 9th, 1976, Bob McAdoo, the former MVP just a year and a half earlier, was traded by the uh, Buffalo Braves with Tom McMillan to the uh, to the Knicks for John Gianelli and Cash. I believe it was like three million or two point five million. I, I I'm forgetting the exact figure, but um, it was a lot of money anyway. And Cash was de- John Gianelli was was all right, but it was definitely a uh, you know most of a tr- crash transaction. And, and this is both these trades kind of combined are considered a watershed. You know, time for the Knicks. They're, you know, they're most of the players that were on those classic Knicks teams, which you and I are going to talk about in, in a future show, um, had been cycled out by this point. Um, Frazier was soon to be gone. Uh, Bradley was just about to retire. Uh, DeBusher and Reed had already retired. So they were trying to obviously replace those guys. And this is kind of considered a, you know, instead of getting this, you're trying to find like this cohesive chemistry that you had in these guys and finding these 
pieces that fit together. It was more of a get these big names and try to make it work. And Haywood and McAdoo were both, you know, power kind of perimeter oriented power forwards. And the the mix uh, for that reason and for the you know that reason and for other reasons did not work out so well. And it it sort of ran like so counter to what the Knicks had been built on during those two championship uh, runs. Is just that was like a team of like guys who fit together perfectly uh, from you know like all the players from all Clyde Frazier, Dave DeBusschere, Bill Bradley, and uh, Willis Reed. But like you know like the, like what you said, these two big time scorers who who play a certain style of basketball just didn't fit with the the uh, people who had stayed from that previous regime like Walt Clyde. So it's just um, it's really it, it, it definitely shows you that how important chemistry is even like outside of just like talent um, from you know because Spencer Haywood and, and McAdoo are two of the best scores that you could imagine in uh, NBA history league history. So it's it just it didn't work out and obviously like you said that they had there were some issues and there were some you know stuff that happened in terms of like Red Holzman's uh relationship um with them but yeah it's just uh, they, uh, they're great scores but it clearly for them it didn't work out in New York that's the toughest part yeah and, and as, as a Knicks fan going I mean obviously I wasn't around for that time but that it had to be hard to go from two championships to you know the with the heightened expectations with bigger stars and not performing up to that level yeah. from previous years and, and you can definitely draw a line between you know these two acquisitions and the larger Knicks philosophy for the past now almost 40 years of um you know uh, of acquiring these big names but not really necessarily working out either for chemistry reasons or for you know these guys are fears past their prime type reasons but you know you look at this era you look at you know some of the obviously the Isaiah era in um in the late 2000s and now you know what what they've kind of done with uh, Phil Jackson uh, coming into this year with looking you know Derek Rose and Joachim Noah and um you know uh wondering if that's you know if they're repeating that same kind of same mistake uh maybe it'll work out this time who knows but uh it's interesting how much of that we've seen in nick's history yeah it's a it's a pattern that keeps on going and i mean it's sort of like anything with history you know you're always like doomed to repeat it if you don't like want to actually pay attention i guess the knicks have uh, never chosen to pay attention to what they've done in the past and you're right, like, even up to this point with Carmelo and Amari, like, that whole thing, uh, you yeah. know, uh, that it just, that they've always committed to going after high-priced free agents, every free agency they're into, they're, they're why they were trying to speak to Kevin Durant and look at what happened. So it's just, they're always trying to go after the biggest free agents and using the, the pool of New York City to attract people. But, you know, that, that it's hard because you're not really building chemistry you're always like uh, leaving your uh, cupboard empty so that you can go after uh, superstars and free agency, but then that always puts you in really difficult positions because you're trading usually young assets or like draft picks. So, yeah, absolutely. And um, 
so yeah, Haywood, there was definitely, according to Red Holzman, a lot of pressure for him to replace DeBusher. And, you know, they were completely different style players. DeBusher was, you know, this rugged, um, defensive-minded guy um, who, um, you know, what was like seven straight all defensive first team players and you know and, and Haywood was you know he was a productive scorer but he didn't have that same you know size and ruggedness that the busher had um and then McAdoo came in um he had he of course been a MVP in 75 and uh, won three straight scoring tires actually would be a top five scorer through the 79 season despite bouncing from he'd spend a couple years with the Knicks and then go to Boston and then go to the Pistons um and then would kind of fall off after 79 before resurrecting things with the Lakers but um you know, I always kind of thought about McAdoo's fall as being you know, pretty sudden but actually he was productive he just weirdly bounced around a lot and this is an interesting thing i think about some of these late 70s trades a common theme in a lot of them is that there are these you know guys who are sort of you know primed to be the next superstars uh haywood and mcadoo pete maravich i think fits that as well and uh, but um you know, a lot of them, there's, you know, kind of, they, they get traded like once or twice and they end up bouncing around. Uh, Nate Archibald as well. Some of it's injury related. Some of it is, you know, um, likely drug related as well uh, in um, in Haywood's case. And, uh, you know, and some of it's just kind of weird reasons. But um, the, the, the fact that there are so many of those instances of, and I guess it's sort of a function also of there being so many more teams now, new guys, maybe less experienced guys who are in the decision-making um, uh, chairs, less patient owners. You, you you have like you're just adding a whole new population to this ecosystem that had been very conservative just a decade ago, and so I guess it leads to situations that are kind of like that. I agree, probably it's, it has to be uh, a lot of different factors that affected both of their uh, situations with the Knicks and 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 just like the Knicks general situation at that time, and. Um, I think the interesting thing is just that they had, uh, like, to get two guys of that magnitude in terms of, like, what they had done in their previous stops, uh, those are really big trades. But, you know, the end result obviously leads to the lack of success that is, it, it's really, it, to, to make those, and when you think about it, they didn't really give up a lot looking back at those trades. First rounder for, uh, uh, for Spencer Haywood and uh, Gene Short, but like you know, they didn't really give up. Uh, you know, guys who were you know prime time players. So it's like um, it's it's really interesting to see like how, especially like sometimes those trades are the ones that could be even the ones that, even when you don't give up a lot. The trades where you're just sort of acquiring a big name player and then it just because of chemistry issues or injuries or whatever different factors like we talked about that it can really affect you being able to win, even if you're not really giving up, like, a lot of different talent. So McAdoo feuded with Buffalo's owner Paul Snyder over some issues, and basically they broke up a pretty successful team, you know, coached by um, Jack Ramsey. Uh, you know, they had Ernie DiGregorio. Uh, they had Randy Smith. You know, they, they were pretty good. You know, they, they'd taken the Celtics to, you know, giving them a little bit of a rough time in um, – in the playoffs and looked like an up and coming team. Basically that's this signal, the end of that, you know, McAdoo being sent there. And then this was another instance of, you know, Buffalo being a smaller market, maybe, maybe needing the cash, or maybe just being cheap. Uh, they soon make, you know, a huge change, but that was basically the, 
you know, really the end of the Braves being, you know, a, a relevant team and leading them to move to San Diego in a, you know, a few years after that. Um, yeah, 77 McAdoo and Haywood didn't really have much time together. Haywood was injured for most of the season. Um, 78, um, Red Holzman actually stepped down for a while. Willis Reed replaced him um, in a uh, sort of a weird um, uh, move, um, forcing Holzman out despite his, um, you know, obviously his great chance as a coach. Um, but figuring maybe Willis Reed would relate to the players better, but that did not work out very well at all. Um, McAdoo was really strong, had really strong that numbers that year, it was third in scoring. Um, and Haywood played health you know he played more but he you know he was down from he'd been a 2010 player for his first seven seasons but this year he was only 13.7 and 6.6 rebounds um and only played 26 minutes per game Lonnie Shelton kind of you know grew into a bigger role uh that season and they were ended up being swept by the Sixers in the second round of the playoffs after winning a you know a three-game series um in the first round um yeah after that both guys were traded pretty quickly um uh, McAdoo was uh, traded uh, midway through the following season for Tom Barker and uh, three first round uh, picks to Boston. Uh, the interesting thing about that trade is um, McAdoo learned of it by reading newspaper, as did uh, Red Auerbach and Dave Cowens, who was a player coach at the time, uh, who had not been consulted by um, John Y. Brown and uh, and resented it very much. Um, and... Um, McAdoo felt unwelcome and found himself sitting. The Collins was playing center, and uh, then he was traded almost immediately after the '79 season to the uh, the Pistons as compa- compensation for ML Carr being signed as a free agent. And then things did not go well in Detroit, and then he kind of fell off from there. Um, and then things definitely were even worse for um, Haywood, Haywood, as bad as they were for McAdoo. It, it, it was very <laughs> yeah. The Haywood thing was. Um... A, a a really bad situation. Now I know like the Lakers were competing for a championship when he got traded from. Uh, well, he went to the Lakers. Yeah, he he went to uh, he went to New Orleans, I think, for a little while, and then he went to the Lakers. Okay, and so um, so they're in the finals, and then that whole I I know it came out recently, like he had talked about it a few years ago. But that uh, he uh, he had become addicted to cocaine and he was d- dismissed from the Lakers by Paul Westhead during the 1980 NBA Finals, which you know um, is like it's still. To, I mean, like the, the way that he explained the story in Deadspin, which was like or uh, which was like crazy and just um, it it was. I mean, it was just it was it was it was a lot. Yes. <laughs> I guess yeah. it tells you about that uh, specific like era, especially with with the role drugs played in in the NBA and in, in basketball, and just how many players had issues with it during that time. Yeah, and he basically plotted to um, to murder Paul Westhead. I mean, he basically he called an old old gangster friend of his in Detroit and said, you know, and, and flew him out and said, you know, I want you to take care of this. And they plotted it all out, and obviously they didn't, they didn't go through with it, and. Later, Haywood cleaned himself up and, you know, and kind of became, you know, a, a later a role model for guys to, you know, in recovery and all that. But that's uh, and Paul West said, you know, they they've apparently, you know, they have no hard feelings now and, they, you know, they, they are are fine now. But um, that's that's pretty amazing, to be honest. I mean, that's just a that's kind of a crazy um uh, situation so especially at the time you know with the final like it's the finals <laughs> it's not just the right re- especially at the regular season so it's especially 
being in the finals is what makes it such a a crazy story, and especially at that time, you know, it's just wow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the uh, the next trade of interest is um, one of the most uh, famous, infamous trades in NBA history. Essentially, the Buffalo Braves and the Boston Celtics owner swapping franchises. Uh, this took place in June 1978, and it led to a trade between the two teams on August 4th, 1978. And it was um, Nate Archibald who um, was traded. Uh, uh, he was traded uh, by the who are now the Clippers from the Braves to, with uh, Marvin Barnes. Billy Knight, a 81 second round draft pick, and it ended up being Dan, uh, Danny Ainge, and then an 83 second round draft pick, who was Rod Foster, to the Boston Celtics for Kevin Kunert, a Kermit Washington, who had just signed with uh, Boston and was expecting to stay there, Sidney Wicks, and Freeman Williams. And it was basically the situation was Irv Levin um, owned the Celtics but wanted to live in Southern California. He obviously knew that he could not move the uh, the Celtics, the you know the, the the prize team of the NBA to um, to Southern California. So he had convinced um, John Y. Brown, who had been the owner of the Kentucky Colonels, he was a um, owner of Kentucky Fried Chicken, probably more importantly than even the Colonels, but he had been a, an owner before. Um, and Brown had actually um, taken a taken like about a three million dollar buyout from the Colonels when the merger happened and um and then ended up buying the braves for only like five hundred thousand dollars so so making a pretty good deal now it wasn't quite as good as the deal that the uh, st louis spirits owners uh, made to get the tv money for you know 35 years but uh, still a pretty good deal and then the um anyway so now he's the owner of the braves and they basically made the trade so that john white brown would get the celtics Irv Levin would get the Braves and move the team to um, and move the team to San Diego. So basically, the business entity that owned the Celtics became the business entity that owned the Clippers. And when like deferred compensation checks were mailed out to like you know guys like Tom Heinsohn, who was the you know former Celtics player and coach, they actually came from the Clippers bank account. Of course, the you know the team histories are you know weren't like that. The team histories you know went with the teams instead of you know staying with the entities that owned them. But I do find that kind of a fascinating situation. Yeah, me too. I think it's <laughs> you. I don't think you'll ever hear of this again. No. I think that's that's the biggest takeaway. <laughs> from reading about that is that this probably will never happen again and it, at that time I mean that it sort of just shows you these owners are all over the place and it just sort of was the wild wild west type of uh, <laughs> approach in, in, in these teams making trades and trading franchises for each other um, it sounds like something that could be in uh, NBA 2K in a, <laughs> in a future time exactly but, um, yeah it's crazy that, that that happened I just I can't imagine, and then like the whole Buffalo break that the Celtics were like a direct uh, result of of that of that former franchise. It's sort of crazy just to think that these owners really switch, and only really just because a person wants to move be in Hollywood and he's like. Eh. But it also shows you, I don't think you can do that today too with a franchise. Not even because of the NBA rules specifically and how much uh, you'd you'd have to do to get around that, but just. I think teams have so much value that just moving them because, oh, on like, which, you know, him saying that he's a Hollywood guy, it's sort of like on a whim, like, oh, you know, I really feel like moving. <laughs> and that's why I feel like doing this. 
now I think it's just so hard to move a team. Just you can't do it just because you feel like it. You do it because there, there has to be like legitimate reasons behind it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the obviously crazy stuff happens in the NBA and even on like the management level, but like the level of professionalism from the '70s to now is just completely totally different. You know, um, like you know, just some of the stuff that. Um, like I said, the '70s are just kind of like this wild, wild west thing where you know, anything goes, and all these franchises like are sort of like on the edge of you know they have a bad year and their their existence is threatened. A lot of them, you know, there's a handful that are you know probably safe, but for the most part, you know, they have they're on the they're living on the edge almost all the time. So I guess it leads to sort of this desperate um, uh, thinking. But uh, yeah, one of my favorite anecdotes is. Um, well, there's two things I think that are interesting. One is that the owners did basically did not consult anyone else. Uh, Red Auerbach did not know about the franchise swap, so he was he was as surprised as anybody. In fact, he he signed uh, uh, Kevin Cooner and Kermit Washington um, to free agent contracts, expecting them to be part of the team, and then they were part of that uh, franchise swap. Um, and then another interesting one is that, of, of course, you know, eventually Irv Levin s- uh, sells the team, the Clippers, to Don Sterling. And um, there's a story about Paul Westfall, who had you know signed a contract with the Celtics and then had some money deferred to him for the first ten years after he retired, which was uh, common back then. More in the more known in the ABA, but apparently in the NBA as well. And uh, and then his accountant was going through the contracts and asked Westfall if he ever got the deferred money. He found out that they hadn't, so they approached Sterling about the money, which was something like $50,000 plus interest, and then Sterling told Westfall, oh, I've been meaning to pay you that. We didn't know where you were, and we couldn't find you, and then he laughed that Westfall, that, you know, Westfall, of course, had come to the Clippers arena at least twice a year when he was with the Suns, but, uh, <laughs> you know, um, so virtually Sterling did pay it, but he never paid the interest on the desk, so there you go. Not, not, not the worst thing Donald Sterling has ever done, but, <laughs> but not ideal. It's an example of <laughs> why he built the reputation that he has today as an NBA owner. Well, yeah, that and the racism. Oh, yeah, that part too. <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> um, so the last trade that I want to talk about, um, and, and this is really, the, the trade itself is not particularly interesting. It's from February 7, 1979. It's Harvey Catchings and Ralph Simpson traded by the 76ers to the Nets for Eric Money and Al Skinner. None of those players particularly noteworthy, but the interesting thing is on March 23rd, 1979, so about six weeks later, the teams actually had to replay their original game from November 8, 1978. And at this point, of course, those players play for the opposite teams. So they um, so they played for their original teams when the game team began, and then they played for the teams they were traded to after the game resumed, which is the only time in the history of sports that any players played for both teams in the same game apparently so this is according to nba.com so that's uh i i that that's just a great story i mean that could that could really have happened at any time i guess but that's just you know that that's that's a fabulous little rookie thing (laughs) yeah that's a great one i i didn't even know that one either that's crazy that they actually had to like start from that time (laughs) of the trade that's crazy though i i don't think we'll ever well now because they hold people out of uh games oh yeah that that would make sense yeah i uh, I hadn't thought about that, but that would that, that would obviously make, make more sense to do it than to uh, uh, than to replay it with opposite players. But yeah, uh, apparently Eric Money was the only guy who scored for both teams. He, he ended it on uh, he was in the 76ers with Dr. J at the end. 
so are there any other trades that uh, that stand out to you? We're, we're gonna, uh, or I'm gonna address them with uh, well, with Rich and with you in a, a couple of the future episodes, including Earl McRow, Earl Monroe, and Jerry Lucas to the Knicks, uh, Maravich to the Jazz, Kareem to the Lakers, um, Dr. J to the 76ers, Paul Westfall for um, Charlie Scott, Nate Thurman to the Bulls. So a lot of the other big trades like that, we do have plans to address elsewhere. Obviously, we you know we go on forever, but we we have to have limits on this show. But is there anything else that really um, stands out to, to you that you really want to bring up? I mean, there are a few. I guess uh, you know, like Moses Malone. I think you guys talked about it a little bit, uh, like maybe when you guys covered Moses last summer after his passing. Um, he was traded twice in like the span of like a month uh, from Buffalo to Portland to Houston. I thought that was really interesting, just especially because at that point in his career, you know, he he had been in the ABA for a little bit, and and then um, you know, he's trying to find his way in, in the NBA, and so you know he gets traded, and then he couldn't agree on a contract with the Blazers, so they traded him like right away, and then he goes to Houston where he builds a three MV or two MV two out of his three MVPs. And he makes the all-star team, I think, five out of the six years. And they make the finals one year when they lose to Boston. So I think that's, like, a really big deal that, you know, they couldn't get work out a contract issue. And then he ends up being such a crucial uh, part of the Rockets team before the Elijah Wan uh, Sampson era. Um, another one I thought was interesting was the Adrian Daly for Spencer Haywood, the New Orleans Jazz one that we talked about, uh, how he ended up being a Laker was through a trade for Adrian Dantley, who with the Lakers, uh, you know, they already had Jamal Wilkes at forward, and I guess they felt like they needed more experience. And, and then Dantley went to Utah, and while they weren't a good team, really big numbers, he was, that's where he sort of grew his legend as a great scorer, uh, or as one of the great scorers of that, like, decade of the 1980s, eventually when he moved over to, to Utah. And so... Um, they never really had like a lot of team success. I think they made the the semifinals a couple of times, and I don't think they won more than forty five games when he was there. But still, you know, like he built a really strong All Star career off of that. Um, another one I thought was interesting was the Bobby Jones George McGinnis uh, Nuggets seventy sixers trade because Bobby Jones played such a big role in um, the Sixers championship, and he was a key six man for them. And George McGinnis sort of like he was a big uh, big time scorer and rebounder, but he never really uh, uh, he struggled to gel with David Thompson in Denver, and uh, they had sort of a rocky uh, relationship on the court, not really off the court, but like on the court they had a rocky like they didn't fit well together, they didn't have good chemistry. So there were like those are a few that I thought were interesting. And I think like one thing to note on is just how many trades uh, feature. Uh, or how many trades uh, can be mixed up with like uh, compensation and how many draft picks end up going to places just because of a person signing somewhere and teams being compensated for it. So, um, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, compensation is kind of a weird that, – that, that's a weird wrinkle that kind of add to all this because, yeah, that basically for those who don't know, um, you know, free agency started right at um, you know the end of the 70s and they had, uh, you know, for the first few years, it was essentially, it was a compensation system where um, you could sign with a different team, but then the com- you either either the um, teams had to agree on some compensation or the NBA commissioner would order, you know, compensation for the uh, players. So, I, you know, it really essentially was adding up to trades. And then um, 
after that, they got rid of competition, but then they had a, you know, what was essentially restricted free agency up until uh, 88, I think. Tom Chambers was the first unrestricted free agency. So, yeah, I mean, free agency existed, but it was obviously in a much different form. Um, yeah, the, the McGinnis-Thompson, one, that's an interesting one. We'll have to delve into that I, I, later when we get into the, um, we're going to talk a little bit about Thompson. But, um, yeah, yeah, McGinnis also, at that point, you know, he was such a great player for the Pacers, but by that point, you know, he was already starting to decline, and there was a little bit of issues with um, you know, him and, and Irving kind of fitting together as well. Um, and, and then, you know, not a huge surprise that would kind of be an issue with um, Thompson as well. But, yeah, the, the only other trend that I would think is interesting, and, and Moses Malone is definitely a part of that because, of course, he um, you mentioned the teams that he was on, but there's also a lot of other young players who um, – bounce around quite a bit before you know before catching on with their their team in the 80s um you, know, you mentioned Dantley Moses Malone um Maurice Lucas you know he, he went a few places um uh, you know was Portland and Kentucky Colonels and and uh St. Louis Spirits and uh Alex English who was went from Milwaukee to Indiana before settling into uh Denver um, there were kind of a number of guys who you know started off their career with you know, two or three different stops before they settled into a role and then ended up you know kind of sticking around in one place or or you know being a start of a player. So um, you know that that certainly has happened since then. I mean, Chauncey Billups is obviously you know a pretty good example of that, but it's not like it's. I can't think of a period in NBA history where that's like been you know a, a, a common trend. Me too. I don't think that it's. Uh... Especially with uh, with the 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 high amount of players that it happened to, like you mentioning Alex English and 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 Dantley are like two people that come to mind right away, and just sort of the early player movement, especially in their careers, because you don't really see it now, especially today with like teams owning like the the players' rights, especially restricted free agency, like it's only that a superstar like you know Kevin Durant and LeBron at those times when they're restricted at least keeps them with the team that drafted them for the first you know at least seven eight years of their career so it's so interesting to see these other guys like sort of just get moved so much especially early on in the careers when they're like 24 25 yeah for, for sure yeah and you know, like it's i think we've you know illustrated pretty well it was a different time so <laughs> most definitely yes so uh anything else before we uh before we head out not really. I just it's really interesting to go through some of these trades and just to see what what happens and what unfolded and uh I'm really shocked some of the, the ones with the owners trading franchise for franchise and uh players getting traded in the middle of games and having to replay them. Uh it really shows you that there were a lot of really interesting NBA stories going on at that time and just a lot of crazy just crazy situations unfolding yes so and we've tried to share them with you throughout our uh, basketball mysteries of the uh, 70s uh series hopefully everyone is enjoying that you can um you can you can find us on twitter and facebook at over and back nba let us know if you're enjoying what we're doing uh leave us a uh, rating and review on itunes or stitcher or wherever you uh, get your podcasts if that's a option available to you and uh, until next time uh thanks for checking us out we're back again soon next time on basketball mysteries of the 1970s
it's not that the things didn't go well for the Sonics in 79-80. It was actually, you know, they won 56 games. It was the best point differential by far of any of the teams in this run. It was just that kind of the, the whole landscape of the league changed to some extent with the arrival of Magic. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.